You're listening to Around Comics. Chicago, you're listening to Around Comics, the comic culture podcast where we discuss everything in and around the world of comics. I'm your host, uh, Brian Salazar. Normally it's Christopher Neesman, but he's not here tonight. Special episode, uh, a little bit of an interview episode tonight. I have a, a very special guest I'm really excited to talk to, uh, a writer, director, producer, comic book publisher, uh, a man of many talents, uh, and somebody that I, I think is very interesting and, and I can't wait to get into. So I'm going to introduce him right now. Uh, Z Chun from TKO Studios, uh, hey. co-founder, right? How are you? Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, first, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, thanks to uh, TKO for sending over some books. Um, I had checked out some of the uh, free issues a while back um, when I think when you first launched stuff um, and then uh, you guys sent some books and I've, I've had a chance to read some of them, not all of them, but I was really impressed with the quality overall, the, the print quality, the paper you guys use, the graphic design. I'm a graphic designer uh, by trade and a web designer. So design is something that I always pay attention to. Um, and the quality of the books are great. So I, I want I want to give you this opportunity to sort of talk to my audience and comic book fans uh, you know, jaded 40 year old comic book nerds like me are 50. I'm almost 50 now. Um, I think there is a, uh, a misconception sometimes by fans. There can be about new comic book startups, especially if it's attached to Hollywood in any way. Um, and I think a lot of times people think that it is sort of, um, a, a way for writers or or people to pitch stories to Hollywood and not really comic book fans. But I've done a little bit of research about your work and your history and all that kind of thing. And I and and obviously it's it's from an outside perspective. You know, I'm uh, I'm not from Hollywood. I don't know anything about Hollywood. It's all you know, just guessing on my part. But um, tell us a little bit about how TKO started, how you got involved, your love of comics, and 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 we'll just kind of go from there. Um, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic book writer and a comic book artist. And I started out actually wanting to be a comic book artist. And um, as I was drawing the comics, I kind of uh, got to this point where I was like, I guess I got to write the words that go in the balloons and come up with a plot. <laughs> so that's actually how I started writing. Um, and then when I was in my teens, I kind of got interested in independent film. And I kind of looked at comic books and indie film and I was like, you know, you really have to pick one of these two really difficult things to do. And so I went uh, fully into film um, and I pursued that for about um, through, through my 20s. And then in my 30s, I transitioned into doing more television. 
still always had uh, a love of comics. And about four and a half, five years ago, I reconnected with um, the father of one of my best friends. Um, he's always been a mentor to me. Um, he comes from the software world, um, Sal, who's my co-founder. And we had this idea to start a new type of comic book company. He's always been into the literary world and comics. And, you know, I'm a huge comic book fan. And we just started talking about what a modern comic book company would look like if you didn't have the preconceived notions of how the comic book industry had to work and the type of stories that had to be told in comic books. And so TKO came out of that. Um, TKO Studios, um, we've been around for 18 months. We work with um, some up-and-coming writers and artists. Uh, but we also work with heavy hitters like Garth Ennis, and Jeff Lemire, Roxanne Gay, Steve Orlando, Steve Niles. Um, and we do things differently than other comic book companies. First off, we binge release our books. So um, at our launch, uh, we launched with four titles in December of 2018. And every single issue of uh, the six-issue arc for the four series were available all at once. And that was um, a strategy because looking around and looking at people's attention spans now, um, People don't like to wait for anything, and they certainly don't want to wait a month in the best-case scenario. Um, sometimes, you know, with non-Marvel and DC books, it can be two or three months between issues. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, we were publishing things in a way that people were used to consuming them. And in doing so, we wanted to build out the comic book audience. So that was one of the first things that we did differently was we binge-released our books. We also released in two different, three different formats right off the bat. So we had um, our oversized trade paperbacks. And as you mentioned, they're kind of like, they're oversized, uh, best mm -hmm. quality paper. Uh, our collector's box set for single issues. So six single issues in a box set. And that was something where we had heard from people that, you know, people who were interested in comics and really liked the design of individual issues, but didn't know how to put them on their bookshelf and didn't necessarily have enough individual issues to put into a, you know, a long box or a short box. So I, I'm going to um, interrupt you there for a second, if, if that's okay. But that was the biggest uh, pleasant surprise of, of the books when they arrived. You know, you, you guys sent me um, some trades, but then you sent me these boxes and I'm like, Oh, is that a hard, I thought it was a hardcover. Yeah. There, here's yours right now. Um, and I have to say, like, I really enjoyed this format, which I was kind of surprised that I would, because at this point in my life, I'm more of a trade waiter. I'm more of a, you know, a, a, just mm -hmm. for simply, sh you know, shelf space. I don't want thousands of single issues anymore, but I have to say this was really clever of, of having the single issues and putting it in a nice display case that I could put on a shelf with the rest of the books. And the quality is just really great. The, the page quality, uh, the print quality thing is great. So I just wanted to uh, point out how much I really did like this and how novel an idea uh, this is that I hope people kind of get that uh, when they get the, your books. Um, yeah. And we found that, you know, we were, we weren't sure exactly how they would sell in terms of like how many people would buy trades and how many people would buy the box sets. But we found that, you know, both versions sell really well um, as well as digital. I mean, I think that we probably sell, you know, a little bit more than most companies do on the digital side. I, I, maybe it's because of our, our e-commerce and our social media is so heavy, but um, so we released in three different formats at once, the trade paperback box set digital. And we also provide every, uh, 
first issue free to read at tkopresents.com. Um, as a new company, we want to stand behind our work and we just want to make sure that people saw the quality and um, could get invested um, without having to, you know, plug down $4 or $5. Yeah. And, and, you know, the first issue that I did download was your book, The Fearsome Dr. Fang. And um, I'm a fan of Dan McCade. Uh, mm-hmm. His art, you know, just blows me away every time I see it. So that was something that attracted me to it right away. And and um, that's one of the things about all the books that I've seen so far is the art quality. Because I think that that's, you know, with independent book publishers, sometimes that can be questionable, like just from a cost, you know, getting good quality artists sometimes is is not always possible for indie book publishers. So I was really impressed with the quality of art. And then obviously, you know, you guys have gotten like uh, um, Gabriel Walta and, and different artists. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on who was on. Steve Epping. Gosh, sorry. I, I really shouldn't forget his name. Um, so that's been awesome to see uh, that stuff. Uh, how, uh, how has that process been for you as far as getting talent? Is that something that you've reached out to? Have they, has, have people reached out to you? Do you have a process for people's um, presenting work to you? That kind of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, the first year, year and a half of TKO, uh, it was really me, Sebastian Gerner, our editor-in-chief, and Cara McKenney, who did our creator outreach, like walking up to people at conventions and being like, listen, we're at TKO Studios. You can't find out anything about us online. Take our word for it. We will exist at some point. But, you know, the... The pitch was strong, I think. The pitch was that, and this was something we talked about internally all the time, which was, you know, we were doing so many things differently as we started to conceptualize the company that we were like, let's just do everything differently. Let's build out every part of this differently from the distribution to also the creative process, um, how we put projects together. And at every stage, we really asked ourselves three questions. And the three questions were, um, is this good for creators? Is it good for fans? And is it good for comics? And all of the big picture decisions that we made were based on those three questions. And if the answer was not yes for all three of those, we wouldn't we wouldn't do something. So I think that they could tell that we were, you know, listen, everybody is into comics. They're not into comics because of the money, certainly. So they're into <laughs> comics because they love the art form and they want it to survive. Sure. And we wanted to create something new. We wanted to create a new way of distribution that we hoped we're going to reach, you know, readers who had never picked up a comic book before. How has that been? Because you have uh, your distribution model is basically direct to comic book stores or direct to consumers through your website. Going direct to comic book stores, how has that process been? Have, have comic book stores been receptive? What, you know, what was the process? I mean, how did you con? Did you just literally go in a phone book and or go on uh, mycomicshop.com and and start calling up comic shops, or was it, you know, some other type of process for that? So, and you know, one thing about about me and also our everyone at the companies we're 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 super transparent about all this stuff. We want to be the most transparent comic book company out there. So the truth is that you know we had an idea of how we were going to reach out to comic book shops. 
Um, but we did our launch first on social media and we were going to roll out something that was what you were talking about, you know, kind of contacting comic book shops one by one. But within 48 hours of um, our launch on Twitter, I was actually surprised by how many comic book shops contacted us. I would say we probably were contacted by about within those first 48 hours, about 20% of comic book shops in the U S which was pretty huge. And then we had to very quickly, we first had um, a deal that I think was, it was just a strange deal. It was something where we offered them two different ways of selling our comics. This is a little bit inside baseball, but one was uh, selling the, the, the books in the stores. And one was allowing them to have uh, books to showcase. And then we would, uh, customers would order with them and we would send the books from our warehouse directly to customers. And that was nobody. Drop, liked almost like a drop ship program. Exactly. And nobody liked that. So again, totally transparent. <laughs> and one of the good things about the company is the decision-making process at the company, because we have, um, we have a lot of runway and we have a lot of backing because of our sister company, uh, which is uh, founded by my co-founder, Sal, which is Seasoft.com. Um, we have a lot of the infrastructure in terms of like accounting, warehousing, fulfillment, billing, all that stuff. But in terms of the decision-making process, we can make a decision and, and make changes within a couple of hours. So we got on the phone. We talked to a bunch of comic book store owners, and we're like, what is the deal that you would want? And then we gave them one of the best deals in comics, which is um, if you order from us, uh, we give you 50% off the cover price. Um, that's your retailer discount. We pay for shipping in the U.S. The other thing about it is we don't go through Diamond. Right, so we're not beholden to their schedule. Um, if a, a retailer orders from us, they basically can know that they can get the books on their shelves again in three to five business days. So the response time is very quick. Uh, when we had these conversations with these um, comic book shop owners, we basically said to them, "Listen, the discount is the same. It doesn't matter if you're buying one copy or a hundred copies. Like we want to even the playing field." and you know, we don't want you to overorder. We're never going to pressure you to overorder. We, you should order the number of books that you feel you can conservatively sell. And within, you know, a week or two, they had all sold out and then they had the books on their shelves again. And so it's a very low risk way of, of buying comics for the retailers and it put them back in the driver's seat. And I think it gave them some control over their business model. Why do you think they didn't like the dropship option? I mean, that seems like something for a, a small business would make sense. You don't have to invest in actual issues. Was it just the return on, on uh, those issues? I think, honestly, we were doing so many things differently that that, <laughs> that was just like, an additional thing that kind of freaked people out. So we just decided to pull that back completely and <laughs> offer them you know, a great deal. And, sure. you know, one of the things that comes with the binge release thing is, you know, listen, comic book shops, I grew up going to comic book shops. They are such an important part of comic book culture. I still almost primarily buy all my books from my local comic book shop. So we always knew that they were an important part of the conversation and we wanted to do what was right by them. One of the things about the binge releasing that's really interesting is let's say you're a comic book shop owner or a manager and a customer comes in, they want a recommendation. You might spend five minutes talking to them about 
um, what the newest issue is that you want to recommend. And if they buy the comic, um, you might only capture a dollar of that sale, a dollar fifty of that sale. And you have to hope that that customer comes back month after month to complete the arc. Whereas when we, when we binge release something, um, a manager or a store owner can spend the same amount of time uh, recommending one of our TKO books, and they'll know that they'll capture the sale for an entire trade or an entire box set. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, the 50% is such a huge uh, advantage over, you know, if you're if you're getting things from Diamond or DC, I'm not sure what the, the dollars are, but, uh, you know, I think it's, I mean, I think 20% is something, I think what retailers probably make uh on a on a marvel book these days if they're lucky um so that's a i mean that's a huge advantage for for you to be able to offer to to do how long do you think that model of distribution is feasible though i mean as you grow if you continue to be successful if you continue to sell more books is that something that you can sustain for you know for a long time for you know the foreseeable future yeah we can sustain that forever okay have you was there any discussion of you know other distribution i mean i I mean now that we've seen diamond you know dc left diamond over this you know last couple of months now and they're with a couple of of new distribution partners um you know was there any discussion about that or or and that uh, the second part to that question is are your books available with online retailers like in stock trades or or um uh, mile high comics, that kind of thing. I mean, whoever wants to order from us and resell, you know, they can absolutely do that. Um, we just did a deal with Ingram and PGW um, to be in the book trade. So we'll be in thousands of bookstores, um, like big box bookstores and independent bookstores by the end of the summer. But, you know, for the comic book stores, you know, we really wanted to be in control. Um, we had heard a lot of complaints about the current distribution system and, you know, we have the ability to do great customer service and we wanted to alleviate some of the stress from comic book shop owners, you know? I mean, one of the funny things is like early on, we heard all these questions about like, you know, even a lot of interviews saying like, well, you know, if you really want to do something good for the comic book store owners, you should do a, a returnability program. We've been, we've been in business for 18 months. We have not had a single comic book shop ask to return their books. Every time they buy our books, they sell out and then they reorder. So, I mean, I think that where it really came into play was something like what happened with coronavirus. So obviously Diamond Shown during coronavirus, we were still able to safely ship books. And we because we were in that unique position, um, starting in March, when we started to see comic book shops 
run at half capacity or start to shutter their doors. We knew that this was going to be pretty bad. And so we created a uh, initiative, which was anytime a customer ordered from TKOPresents.com, they could choose their local comic book shop. And we would just send that comic book shop 50% of the sale. Um, so if they spent 40 bucks, we would just send them $20. They didn't have to handle fulfillment, shipping, anything. But it was a way for us to um, give back to the comic book shops that had really supported us. Um, if, right. the, if a comic book shop wasn't listed, we would list them within 48 hours. And over the course of that initiative, uh, we sent out over 1,300 checks to over 650 stores. That's great. That's terrific. I mean, that's, you know, that's something that I, I know a lot of, I was going to ask about, you know, you're a distributor of your own books, but you're also a retailer of your own books. And and I know sometimes I, I come from a similar business where uh, we're a distributor and also a retailer. And I know a lot of our dealers, the store owners, um, are are leery of that relationship and are very watchful of you know what prices that kind of thing we sell things at but you know in this modern age most companies that produce products are selling direct to consumers was there any pushback from you know retail shop owners on the fact that you sell direct to consumers as well um there hasn't been um i haven't heard those I haven't heard anything. To be okay. I, I just didn't know. It's surprising for me, you know, knowing shop owners over the last 30 years, they, they, they like to complain about everything. So, <laughs> but um, that's good to hear. That's good that you must be doing something right if they're not. So uh, that's terrific. Yeah. That, that, well, I was going to ask too, you know, during this time, you know, what other changes have you guys had to enforce or, or put in place because of COVID, because of uh, this strange time that we're living in? I mean, we're still on track. I mean, the, I mean, everyone works from home, essentially, but here's the comic book world. So even within the first two waves of books, we had artists in Italy and right. writers in Italy and, you know, artists. In, I mean, we're all spread out all, all over the world. Even sure. Sebastian's in New York. Uh, Sebastian, my editor-in-chief, is in New York and Sal and I are in, in Los Angeles. And so, you know, I think we were pretty uh, set up to run remotely. Um, but in terms of, you know, pausing projects or stopping projects, we haven't done any of that because, you know, we, you know, we want to make sure, I mean, again, it's like what's good for artists and what's good for creators is not shutting down <laughs> their paychecks, <laughs> during you know? So um, we've continued kind of business as usual. If shops wanted to order from us, we would fill their orders. Um, but really, you know, as somebody who grew up going to comic book shops and had a relationship with the people at my comic book shop growing up, like, you know, seeing shops closing, um, shuttering their doors and calling shop owners during this time and hearing the stress in their voice, it really affected all of us. A TKO, and we, we we really wanted to do something for the shops. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, I, you know, uh, like you, I grew up going to comic book stores, and I have I have some friends that own shops, and uh, at one time, you know, thought about opening my own, and and I can't imagine, you know, 
how difficult this time is right now for them. I mean, they run on such thin margins as it is. And, uh, you know, to deal with this and, and not be able to service their customers and get books and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, we're going to see a lot of ripple effect from this for years to come, I think in the industry, uh, unfortunately. Um, I wanted to go back to the binge release model and the idea of the single issues, but as a collected edition, what was the thinking behind that? As far as, I mean, normally if, if you're going to release single issues, it's because you're doing it on a monthly schedule and people want to collect those single issues. And then you have people like me who maybe will wait for the trade, that kind of thing. So you're releasing them all at the same time. Why release single issues and a trade? It was really to service, the single issues were really to service people with the collector's mentality. Um, If you looked at the people who were within the company, we were kind of split. We were, there were some of us who loved trades, only bought trades. And for me, like I grew up reading single issues. I love holding a single issue. I love the fact that if you have an entire arc, there's six different pieces of artwork um, that you're looking at. And then there's some people who like digital and we just said to ourselves, well, we live in a modern age. Why not just give any option that whatever format you want to enjoy your comics in, we'll publish them in that format. And also, you know, we had brought uh, Jared K. Fletcher on board to design all of our books. And honestly, he was just too good. I wanted him to design as much as possible for us. (laughs) That's, uh, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I love the for I love these you know the oversized format the archival paper that you guys are using the print quality is phenomenal and you know there is something I I read a lot of digital comics now just for you know uh, it's just more efficient for me to be able to do that but there's nothing like holding a, a, a comic book in your hand and when the art is fantastic I, I don't I mean I read uh, the Jeff Lemire book Sentient is it Sentient or Sentient. I think you say either one. Okay, I like sentient. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much if I hadn't read it in the single issues. Because like you're saying, like every one, the cover, you know, you have this different uh, uh, idea going into it when you see the cover and then how, especially with Gabriel Walta, he uses the covers in such a... a you know, sort of brilliant way. I especially love, I think it was like issue four. Uh, I, I'm going to pull it out here just because I want to talk about it, but no, it was issue number five. This cover, especially um, yeah. is just a brilliant cover that he used that, that little color effect. And then you see why later on in the issue. And it's just, this issue was probably my favorite of the book or I mean, of the series. Um, it was just so well done. Uh, by both of them. And I talked about this on, on our last podcast. I talked about this book in, specifically and how much I enjoyed it um, and how, you know, how wonderful it was to see two very, you know, competent craftsmen do, you know, make a really good comic book. And part of that was the fact that I read them in single issues. That really was, I I hate to say it, like you guys are making me want to buy single issues again. So I hate you for that Uh, because I don't, I don't have the space in my house for single issues, but 
it's a really great i mean it is a really great idea to 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 have the opportunity to buy them in whatever format you like and the way that you guys are doing it is just um it makes it that much more of an enjoyable experience well we wanted to return to a, a time where you know I, I remember the feeling of getting you know single issues um you know standing in line and getting first issue of young blood or <laughs> x-men number one uh and how special it felt how old felt. are you, how old are you if you don't mind my asking I'm 40 okay so you're a 90s kid okay yeah. so I, li- I lived through all that stuff and you know that was that was really the heyday of when i was really really into comics and you know chromium cover Exo Man of War. Don't all, all do please don't tell me you guys are going to start doing uh, hologram covers. No hologram covers, please. There's going to be 10 trading cards. <laughs> we'll have one. You're going to have to collect all of them. I just bought, uh, <laughs> I just bought a, a pack of... Um, it was a Tops. I don't know if you remember or not. Back in the 90s, uh, it was Topps Comics, the, the trading card company. They did a series of comics with Jack Kirby art and Roy Thomas wrote them. And they came with, with cards. But the was it Secret uh, City or Secret Six or something like that. It was, um, I have them. But I, I, There's one that has an all red cover. I, I, f- I feel like I. Feel like like all American Patriot and, and like. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of crazy Kirby stuff. But I was so disappointed because the cards weren't still with the books i was i was kind of disappointed they weren't there as much as i don't need that stuff around my house i have enough but um all right so i don't i i kind of lost track of where we were at we wanted to return to a point where you know comics felt like something really special and that they were art objects um that you would be proud to display in your home and the box set for me really does that where it feels like well when you open it up it really feels like a special experience um it's funny that you say that about about walta as well because you know one of the advantages about the binge release model is you're waiting right until a book is completely finished to release it and because of that, you can work on your own schedule. And that was that was a little bit coming out of, you know, I've, I've worked in television. I've worked in network TV for about five years. And sometimes we do 22 episodes a year. And honestly, it's really hard to make 22 amazing episodes of TV when you're on that schedule. And I looked at the comic book world and I was like, well, are these artists working at their best if they're doing 20 to 22 pages every month? And honestly, the answer is no. Like, so with something like Sentient, you know, Gabriel signed on and I found one image on Twitter. I was looking, I was trying to figure out who would color him. And I found one image on Twitter and I was like, Gabriel, who, uh, who colored you here? And he was like, oh, I did. I'm trained as a, I'm, a, I'm trained as a classical painter. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, why don't you do that for Sentient? And he was like, no, no, no. It'll take like seven, eight weeks per issue. And I was like, Ben, we're going to give you seven to eight weeks per issue because I've never seen your artwork look like this. And, you know, every page of that book of Sentient is hand painted. It's watercolor and gloss. You know, it's, it's inks first, but like, and, and, and you know, that there's, a, uh, there's, there's a reason why I think, you know, you mentioned the art of the books. And one of the things is we give the artists the amount of time it takes them to the, do their absolute best work. And that's, you know, that's our commitment to them. Now, 
Okay, that brings up a question, though. You know, as an artist um, or writer, I mean, you're you generally you're getting a paid a page rate. So while you know these guys obviously want to do their best work, they also have to think about well, how much can I get done in a month? So if this takes me seven eight weeks and I'm still only getting paid a page rate. I mean, is that a battle you have to face sometimes with these guys or are they more likely to just be like, you know what, I want to do great work. So let's just do, you know, it doesn't matter so much. Well, so we give, we give people a great page rate and we give them a great back end. And so I think those two combined, okay. and, you know, their trust in us as a, as a company, you know, I think all those things kind of, and, you know, I think there's also a lot of people where, you know, burnout is a real thing you know, with comic book artists, especially, but also comic book writers where if you're not getting a great page rate and you have to put together and do six issues a month or something like that, it can become very difficult for them. And so, you know, for us, we want to, we want to pay people what they're worth. We want to allow them to spend the amount of time that they need to do their best work. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to and not be stressed about money. Right. Yeah. And then, like you said, the 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 monthly schedule is a grind. I, I know enough writers, enough artists, especially for artists. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a tough schedule for anyone to try and put out quality work. And it's amazing what some of these guys are able to do on that schedule. But we see it over and over again. You know, books that you know miss schedule at Marvel or DC or at the big publishers because it's it's so difficult to do. So that's that's really a a great thing to see you guys do it, but. Um, is, is that, you know, with the back end that you're, you know, give these guys, is there sort of an implication or is there a, um, uh, not a pressure, but you know, is, is, is the thought in mind, Hey, we're trying to, you know, also push this stuff to other mediums, to TV or, or movies, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's a part of every comic books, uh, comic book company's business model. Um, for us, you know, we have, because I come from film and TV, mm-hmm. Sal has started, you know, a dozen businesses. Um, we know that that is definitely part of the way that our business has to work. We made it very clear early on that the pri- that the main thing is that they have to be great comic books to start out with. You know, there's certainly a lot of comic book companies that kind of, you know, it's maybe they'll pay for a writer but then they'll skimp on the uh, the artist, or if they pay for the artist, they'll skimp on the colorist. If they pay for the colorist, they'll skimp, skimp on the lettering, or maybe they'll just skimp on everything, including the paper quality. And for us, you know, we never wanted to be one of those companies. We wanted to create comic books that people were going to love, and that only really helps in terms of creating a fan base. You know, if you move into film and TV. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, obviously you're, you're, you come from, uh, film and, and, and TV background. You wrote for uh, a couple of shows that I really enjoyed, which was Gotham. Uh, I'm a big fan of Gotham. You were a writer and you, you had a couple of different titles on that show over, over a Mm -hmm. few different seasons. Um, and once upon a time, which was another show that I watched with my family really enjoyed that show as well. I wanted to ask you about Gotham, if you don't mind, uh, deviating from the comic talk a little bit we'll go back to comics because i'm i still have more questions but um one of the questions in gotham i mean you're a perfect guy to ask is i loved the feeling i got from that show that 
it, it felt like a, a wonderful blend of sort of Tim Burton's Batman, the, a little bit of camp from the, the 60s Batman, a little bit of the Nolan verse, and obviously a, a lot of the comic book, um, some of the, the, you know, the, the better comic book work. Was that a conscious thing in, in the writer's room or, or on set, or was that something more organic that just sort of grew out of the people involved? I mean, I, I joined the crew in season three, and I was there from season three to season five, the last season, which was actually, it was great to be able to end a show knowing that you were going to end it. Mm-hmm. You could do anything you want. You want to do, you could do everything that you ever wanted to do with the show. Um, and I think that the show kind of evolved. I think season one felt more like a procedural um, set in Gotham, like a cop show set in Gotham. And then where I really felt like, because I really like serialized shows. I've, I've only really ever worked on um, serialized shows as opposed to like crime solving, you know, mm-hmm. one episode shows. And that's where I felt like um, uh, I really got hooked into Gotham was seeing, you know, Bruce Wayne get older and also seeing Penguin and Riddler and the kind of soapy stories and the kind of serialized stories and, and learning about these villains over the course of, you know, a hundred episodes and watching them change. Um, right. That was really, that was a very, a really satisfying experience. Um, in terms of the tone of the show, I mean, so season one, that this, the first season I was on the show, season three, like just to be totally honest, I don't think I did a great job as a writer on the show. Like, I didn't really quite know the show as well as I did in season four and season five. Um, but what I found in season four and season five was because of the look of the show was so unique and so strong, you know, it was really noirish and had a great look to it. The art direction yeah. design, all the actors were really wonderful. It actually could sustain a lot of weirdness to it. Mm-hmm. So like my episodes were typically like the, I, I tried to write the weirdest episodes that I could because it was just really fun. Like, uh, you know, I wrote an episode, I mean, the story I, I always tell is the fact that I could just pitch that in the middle of a scene, um, Jeremiah Velasca, who plays our like kind of Joker, mm-hmm. pulls out a bazooka from nowhere and blows somebody up, and that's the end of the scene. Like I don't know any other show that I would have been able to pitch <laughs> all the way to the end. Well, there was that, you know, I don't know if, I'm not sure what season it was, but I remember because I follow on Twitter, I, rem- I, f- I followed the writer's room. They have the, you know, they have a writer's room Twitter account. And I remember there was sort of like this campaign of keep Gotham weird, you know, like playing on the, uh, you know, obviously the Seattle thing. But, and I love that. I love the fact that Gotham, you know, that show was weird. It was out there. I, my favorite character is Zaz. Like that mm-hmm. actor who, you know, he's he's done some other things that have been phenomenal. He's on Barry, uh, yeah. which he's just amazing. But he was so bizarre and out there and, and strange. And I think a lot of people, you know, didn't quite know how to react to that show in a lot of ways because of it, but it's like, listen, Batman has been around, these characters have been around for so long, you can't just do the same thing. You can't, I mean, it, it's going to get boring. Those stories have been told. I'd love to see new, different takes on these characters, and, you know, it's it's all... Um, it, it, it's all fantasy, you know, have fun with it. Like, you know, it's like, the, the, I, th- I always felt that the core was there, the sort of essence of these characters, no matter how different or strange or weird or how, you know, the, the sort of essence was there and the, and the idea was there. 
Um, so I never quite understood how that people didn't enjoy it for what it was, but uh, I, I mean, it was, creatively it was such a fun experience. I mean, yeah. I, I really loved every minute of it. And actually, it's funny. Um, I got the job from the script for Seven Deadly Sins. Oh, no, um, okay. wife, yeah, and they were looking for a writer, and I was I, I was pushing my agents, and I was like, send them Seven Deadly Sins, and they were like it's a Western that takes place, you know, in 1857. And I was like, here's how you tell them. You tell them that it's a serialized action show, like an action series. And that it's told from the point of view of the villains, which is, you know, a lot of Gotham is from the point of view of the villains. And so, um, uh, the, the producers of Gotham read the script and I went in and met and, um, you know, I'm a huge Batman fan. And so I think that went a long way as well. You know, that brings up an interesting thing of like, you know, how does that stuff work in the sense of, you know, you were brought on in season three as a writer. Are they are they just you know, is it just a matter of like people moving on to other projects and and then you're you know, they just need new writers to come in. And so they they try and find someone. And then, you know, there as I sort of alluded to in the beginning, I think in in fandom, in this weird comic book fandom that we have there are preconceived notions about uh, comics being used as, as pitches. Is that something, is that more and more prevalent in Hollywood these days? Like having a comic book and it makes sense. Like if you have something published that you can visually see, is that a easier sell than just a script? Um, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, typically, but it also depends on the project, depends on who is writing it. Um, you know, part of my disillusionment with a lot of the kind of IP generating companies, uh, IP generating combo companies that were kind of putting out a low quality product was that, you know, especially when I was first starting out, um, I would get sent a lot of comic book properties from my agents um, to see if I want to adapt them. And it was always the same conversation. It was like a producer would send me a comic book and they would say, um, here's a comic book. It's got a huge fan base. What do you think? And I would say, you might not know, but I know comics and I know that this has not been released yet. And I also know that these are <laughs> flat. They're not full colors. So this, this doesn't have any fans. It's not even a, uh, it doesn't even exist. <laughs> and like, okay, cool. What do you think about the concept? Um, just so you know, the option that, but um, we're probably going to change every single thing about it, um, except the title, but maybe the title too. And I would be like, well, I mean. So they're more interested in the fan base that it might already have than something and go into a meeting and say, this is a comic book, which is, you know, a lie for the most part and say, you know, this already exists and has a fan base and we think you should make this into a movie or a TV show. But, you know, to me, there was no benefit to it. It's like, if you want to change everything about a comic book to make it into a movie or a TV show, then you're destroying the underlying concept. You're you're destroying everything that fans love about it, if, if that is <laughs> Why why do they not understand that? Like, hey, I'm a fan of this comic, so let's completely change it so it doesn't, you know, it's not even recognizable. That is a weird thing we see over and over again. It's it's strange, you know, it's and 
you know, when you're, when you're starting out, you take a lot of those meetings, but after a while I was like, why, what, 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 what even is this? You know, what, why would I do any of this stuff? The only, the only thing I know about Hollywood is basically what I've learned from Robert Altman films, you know, the player that's pretty, and, but it seems like that's not that far off. Like a lot of it is not, (laughs) it's not that, I mean, honestly, it's not that far. I mean, I actually just rewatched that opening shot of the player recently. And, you know, I hadn't watched it since I was in high school when, you know, I was certainly not in the film industry then. And watching it now, it was, I kind of got chills down my spine because of how accurate <laughs> How accurate in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, it, it is funny. Like, you know, I, I'm always curious about, because, you know, fandom thinks there's this weird entitlement with fans. Like if you've invested, you know, I've invested 40 years into Superman. So I feel like I have some sort of entitlement with whatever Superman does, you know, whether it's a movie or a comic book or whatever it is like fans have that strange entitlement feeling. And they're also like a lot of assumptions that comes with that, that they think they know how things work. They think they know why decisions are made and that kind of thing. And so I'm always curious about those sort of decisions. Like, why did they, you know, why would someone do this sort of thing? Why would they? So, uh, you know, going to your work, like you've done, you know, uh, uh, in TV, you did Once Upon a Time, which is sort of an adaptation, obviously, of grim fairy tales and, and that kind of thing. Then you did Gotham, which is kind of an adaptation. And, and then you're now the showrunner show runner and executive producer on a new show for HBO Max, which is a uh, uh, prequel of Gremlins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So is this something that you, you know... Is it something that you enjoy doing? Is it something that you've you've just sort of found a, a niche that you're good at, or uh, it's just happenstance that, that these things have come about? I mean, I kind of I, I, sometimes I'll tell people that like I am a I'm a I'm a fan person first and a writer second, and like I, I mean I had to really keep my fanboy nature under wraps in the Gotham writers room in order to let them tell them respect me. But, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I love, I, I mean, I, I love the fact that there are these characters in these worlds that people created sometimes 50, 60, a hundred years ago, you know, even gremlins, you know, 40 years ago and they have these followings and people just want more. Mm-hmm. They just want more stories and things. I mean, I remember when I was, you know, in my teens and it was like, there weren't enough alien movies. There weren't enough Robocop movies. There weren't enough predator movies. And I just, I just devoured all that dark horse, you know? And I just, I love that there's, I love that people care about those worlds and those characters and those stories enough to dedicate so much of their lives to them. And, I really like telling more stories within those worlds. You know, and, and the, the difference now, I think, then certainly when I was younger is, you know, I was the same way. I obviously grew up in the in the eighties and nineties, and and a huge nerd, and you know, always wanting more of those tales. But a lot of times when we got them, they were so bad, they were poorly done, they were not done well. And now you're seeing things that are done so well. 
you know, I mean, they challenge the original material because they're done so well. Uh, I think in a lot of ways that, that there's just so many more opportunities and, and, and so many more avenues to do it in. Um, and you just see some incredibly quality things that are either prequels or, 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 uh, you know, spinoffs from different shows that I think 20 years ago, you, you didn't see that kind of quality and it's really cool to see a lot of the stuff now. So, um, like I said, I, I've been a fan of, you know, so many of these things, but I was also very skeptical in a lot of ways, um, from time to time on things. So it's, I think as you see, uh, more writers that are fans of this stuff, do it, that's where the quality comes from. But I wonder if, you know, comics went through this too, like comics originally had, that group of creators, the early golden age and silver age guys who were not comic book fans, they were artists and writers and they were just trying to do work and they created all these characters and that, and then you had the guys that came after that, the Roy Thomases and that kind of guys that were huge fans. And then comics became sort of insular because of that, because you had fans creating the work. Do you think there's a worry about that for, other mediums that we might get to that same. And and I don't know that it was necessarily a bad thing in comics, but I think it did get to be, and we've seen a pushback obviously recently of, you know, diversity. There, there wasn't enough diversity in comics because the only people writing comics were comic book fans, you know, uh, white straight male comic book fans. And you didn't have diversity in comics for a long time. And, and we're still fighting, you know, sort of seeing that fight play out. Um, I'm wondering if, if, you know, we may run into that same sort of thing because you have so much fandom now working in the industries of TV and, and, and movies. Do you think that's, um, I mean, obviously it has, you know, those industries have their own problems, obviously, but do you think it there's any problems because you might see some so many fans now of those properties writing those properties or working on those properties? Yeah, I think that you know I think it's always you're walking a tightrope with that stuff. I think that you know on the film side it's a little bit different because there's fewer people, you know, there's fewer creative voices in in the room. I mean there might be one or two writers, three writers, and then a director. But, you know, in TV, you know, what, what was nice about Gotham was there was a really, there's really a variety of perspectives. So on the sliding scale of people who were super, super fans of Batman, mm-hmm. down to people who really, you know, didn't, had never read a Batman comic before. The, they were just good writers. And they were great at creating, you know, great scenes, and they could step into the story and say like, Oh, well, this is our version of penguin. What is the coolest thing for them to do? But it didn't necessarily come from knowing 30 years of penguins backstory. So, right. uh, so and we do the same thing with gremlins. I mean, there's certainly people who are super fans in the writer's room. Um, and there's people who are kind of like, they, they love gremlins, but it wasn't like, you know, the defining movie. Of their, <laughs> their but, you know, we have those people in the writer's sure. room board artists and it's amazing to have those people because they're so passionate and about you know all hey, the cameras. <laughs> I don't know who was some some comic book writer told me once is like hey uh it, somewhere out there 
is Stiltman's biggest fan. Like he's, you know, <laughs> somebody lo- and I loved Gremlins. I mean, I grew, you know, that was a 19, what was that? 1984. So I was like 13 when Gremlins came out. That talk to, uh, so how did that project? Well, we should tell people what that project is. It's secrets, yeah. uh, Gremlins secrets of the Mogwai. It's an That's animated cool. series on HBO max. Um, I'm really interested in this. It's a period piece, though. It's a prequel set in the 20s, correct? That's right. So um, it's it's Gremlin Secrets of the Mogwai. It's um, from Warner Brothers Animation and Amblin. And it's going to be on HBO Max, but not until probably late next year. Okay. Um, animation takes forever. Uh, I, I didn't realize that going from live. <laughs> but it's super, super fun. I'm having a great time doing it. Um, it is, uh, if you remember the early, the, the Gremlins movies, um, there's the old shop owner, Mr. Wing, who's kind of the guardian of Gizmo. So this show is a prequel series. Uh, it takes place in 1920s China, and it is the story of how Mr. Wing, um, who was 10 years old um, at the beginning of the series, meets Gizmo and the adventures that they go on. And we delve into a lot of Gremlins mythology, um, but it's a, it's a serialized, you know, action adventure show, you know, where our, our touchstones are like um, Indiana Jones and Goonies um, really looking at it as a co-viewing show. So um, parents and adults, uh, uh, parents and kids can watch it together. That sounds awesome. I, I love the idea of it. And, and uh, there is, is there, do you have any trepidation at all about sometimes, I mean, you know, not to get sort of like heady at all, but like the postmodernist view of everything. We're like, okay, we're going to examine the mythology behind Gremlins because all we knew from the movie is this little creature lived in this little shop in Chinatown, and that was all we knew. You know, we didn't really know much more about them. Don't feed them after midnight. Don't get them wet. And now you're going to kind of go back and examine that, and and I think sometimes like that can be good, but sometimes like, well, maybe it's, maybe we don't need to know everything about the gremlins. Is, is that something that's, you know, sort of conscious in your mind when you're doing this? You know, I think that, I mean, not, not a hundred percent. I mean, I certainly, I certainly am conscious of over explaining certain things. Um, but, you know, one of the most gratifying things about this experience is, is, um, Joe Dante, uh, the uh, director of the original Gremlins movies, is a consulting producer on it. Oh. And so it's, it's been, I mean, he has amazing stories. He's been such a supporter of the project. And, you know, it's been really nice to, I mean, he's he's the guy, you know what I mean? Right. And so pitching him stuff and sending him scripts and concepts, like, it's been it's been really nice to have that kind of seal of approval on stuff. Now, why did you want to get involved in this? Like, how did you get involved with this project? Was this something, was this your idea? Was this something that your agents brought to you? How, how did it come about? Um, it was somebody that I knew worked at Amblin. They knew that I was coming off of Gotham and that I was looking for something. And um, they also knew that, again, I, it's very crazy. It's, it's really crazy, but seven deadly sins got me the job on, um, Gotham and the fearsome Dr. Fang was the sample that got me the Gremlins job um, because fearsome Dr. Fang is a you know treasure hunting adventure show sure. uh, in China, kind of around that time period. And um, I just you know I grew up going to Hong Kong and Singapore for a couple months every 
summer. And so I have like a pretty good reference point uh, culturally for all that stuff. And, you know, they knew that they, they knew that they wanted to do a gremlins animated prequel set in China. And I went in and I pitched my take on it. Um, And sometimes it's nice to just know that someone's looking for, I mean, as a writer who's pitching stuff, I mean, certainly when I was first starting out, you know, I did a lot of walking into rooms and pitching stuff that I had no idea whether or not they had any desire for anything remotely (laughs) I knew that they wanted a Gremlins animated prequel and I had a take on it was I just I kind of like that process because it's like hey I hear you like you want something and here is my version of it as opposed hi you don't know me cold calling yeah here's something it's like Here's a glass of milk. I don't know if you're lactose intolerant, you know? <laughs> Is that a nerve wracking? Like, you know, so you were coming off of Gotham and I'm, you know, I'm assuming you didn't have anything necessarily lined up. You know, is that, it's gotta be a nerve wracking thing as a, as a writer, like sort of, okay, what's my next project? What am I doing next? Um, you know, what is that, you know, is that a stressful thing or is that, are you at a point in your career where you're, you know, you're confident in, in what's going to, you know, something's going to come next. I mean, I spent a lot of years, you know, decades in that space of, um, being really worried about the next job and what would happen if, you know, a show ended or, you know, especially coming from the independent film world where, you know, I wrote and directed two movies that were at Sundance and between those movies, it was like, what am I going to do? What am I literally, what do I do for money? Um, And the good news is if there's any writers who are listening to this, you do reach a point in your career where, um, you know enough people, you've proven yourself, people like working with you in writer's rooms that a lot of that stress kind of goes away, that you know that you're going to have options coming out of, um, you know, when, when I was done with Once Upon a Time, I was really worried, and then literally seven days later, I was I was in the Gotham writer's room. So oh, wow. I, think, I think that was the first time where I was like, oh, okay, I don't have to... F- this is going to be okay. I can do this. I can. <laughs> I don't have to freak out every time. That's something. <laughs> and that's very, I mean, that's very much like the comic book industry. I know, you know, I've known so many of these guys over the years. I've been talking to comic book creators. I've been friends with comic book creators for, you know, 20 years now. And I'm, you know, I'm not in the industry. I've had a, a, a regular job, you know, for, for 20 six years, you know, kind of thing. And, um, but it's that how much energy they have to put into constantly selling themselves. And yeah. I, you know, something people I don't think about when they go into these industries where it's freelance, where you're not sure where your next paycheck is going to come from of like, you can't, um, you can't, just be good if you're really good you can get away with a lot but you if you're just kind of good you can't be an asshole i mean there's you know what i mean like i'm sure there's there's a lot of effort or energy or you know uh pressure about just getting along with other people just making sure people like you just making sure that other writers other you know producers that kind of thing uh, i'm sure that's a, a big part of it too huh um, it, it certainly is, you know, I think that, but weirdly, I mean, it, it was, it was very strange. The, 
the opposite. I, I found that I spent a lot of time worrying about being liked in the writer's room and being nervous to pitch and nervous to um, make my opinion heard. And then there was a certain point where I had a very tough year in, 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 a, in, in a writer's room. I, I won't say when it was, but it, it was it was bad enough where I was like, I can't believe they're not firing me. I'm doing <laughs> such a bad job. And then I was like, you know what? I can't do a worse job. So I'm just going to say what's on my mind and not hold back. And at, and then and then like it was like flipping a switch. All of a sudden, I was really good at the job, and it was like it was actually it was it was a very strange moment because I was like I spent so much time worrying about if I was going to hold on to this job or if I was going to do a good job or if that my pitches were going to fail that I was really seizing up and at the point where I was like, you know what, just do whatever. Cause it's the worst case is they're going to fire you. And all of a sudden I became like indispensable to the show because I was like, I didn't know it was very, it was very strange. It was a very, it's a very, it's a very Stanley thing, a very Stanley moment. I don't know if you're, you're, you know, like familiar with, you know, he's told the story a million times, but the, the, you know, before he wrote Spider-Man, um, you know, he was working for Archie Goodwin and, and writing these comics and he was, he was not enjoying it and he was going to quit. And he had stuff he was working on. He was at home and he was sort of hemming and hawing and frustrated. And his wife's like, well, just write what you want. The, the worst they could do is fire you. Just do what you want to do, and and then he wrote Spider Man, and and that sort of yeah. It's interesting, like you weren't being authentic, and so that was what was holding you back. You know, like you, it, it, I, that's a hard thing for artists to understand. Maybe I think it's a hard thing for anybody to to you know because you, you're so in the moment, you know, and you're there's so much at stake. I mean, I was. It was also like, you know, I was, you know, you, you have the job that you've always wanted and you're like, God, what if, what if I'm bad at this? <laughs> <laughs> well, that imposter syndrome, right? Like that's been something I've talked with creators over and over again about, like, you know, I, there's guys that I've known that are really, you know, successful in this industry and they still have doubts. They still don't think like, it's when are they going to find out that I'm faking it? Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's an amazing thing. That's such a strange thing for me as an outsider uh, to, to look at some of these guys and go, well, you, you've, you've proven it over and over again. Yeah. How can you still have those doubts? But, you know, do you think maybe that's part of what makes an artist is, is those doubts like the self-realization, right? I mean, like being able to sort of look at the world in that way. Is that, is that kind of what makes an artist an artist? I think it's tough to say because I feel like there's so many, so many people go through so many stages of their career, you know, and there's so many different feelings mixed up in all those. I mean, certainly when I was trying to make my first feature, I was like, I don't know that I'm cut out for that. <laughs> like, I just don't know that I can do this. It's so stressful, you know? And then. Well, and you, were, you were directing Brian Cranston. Yeah. Like what was that? Like, I mean, how old were you? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm the, the, the name of the movie. Uh, 
and I, yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, so uh, this, at, at every stage, I was kind of youngish, you know. Um, I got my first short in Sundance when I was 26, and I had my first feature there when I was 28. And honestly, like, I kind of wasn't. It was like it was great that I was there, and even when I was directing that Brian Cranston movie, I was. I think I was probably like 29 or something like that, but it was, you know, and, and I honestly, I wasn't really ready. It was like kind of like the, my, my, the stuff that I was doing was a level of I think required a level of sophistication and maturity that I, and, and frankly just experience that I didn't have, you know, I, I always just tried to do stuff on my own and like, you know, my first feature that played at Sundance, the budget was like $150,000. My first short that was at Sundance, the budget was $600. So I was putting this, I mean, I was putting this stuff together with duct tape and it was getting out there. But, you know, I, I don't think I, I, when I was in it, I don't think I had the maturity or the understanding of the industry or how to, how to use certain things to my advantage that I have now. You know, it was, it was, you know, it was, it's taken me a long time to kind of feel like I'm in the right place at the right time. Going back, I want, you know, and I, I don't necessarily want to delve into this too deeply, but, you know, um, going back to talking about the pressures that you felt in a writer's room, was there additional pressure uh, being uh, Asian? Being, you know, was was that something in an industry where, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, uh, complaints and, 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 and situations where, you know, uh, diversity has been a problem, obviously. Is that something that you felt an additional sort of pressure um, that maybe a, a white writer didn't feel because you didn't want to speak out? You didn't want to necessarily, uh, you know, speak your mind? I don't know. You know, I certainly, there, there has been, I would say that for the majority of the writer's room jobs I've had, I've been the only person of color in the room, um, which I think that to me is frustrating, but it's more of a, it's a bigger picture staffing issue where um, very often if there is a white showrunner, they're just not thinking about it until a lot of the money is spent um, and then they're looking for a diverse writer or maybe they're not, you know, I, I just, it, that was frustrating for me, but also the makeup of male, female in the writer's room, I think was very frustrating to me. Sometimes there would be years where uh, there would only be one woman in the writer's room. And especially if that uh, female writer was, a lower level that creates a very strange dynamic in the writer's room. Um, and, you know, there's certain things that you can do on a structural level from, you know, if you're a corporation or if you are an executive, but, you know, I found that when I started show running uh, Gremlins, I wanted to make sure that it was the writer's room and the the crew that I wish that I had had on some of these shows. And so we really are 50, 50 male, female, um, um, and certainly non-binary and trans, um, crew members uh, who are on our show. And, you know, it's a very diverse show. 
And I think that it took a lot of work. And you know, there was certainly because the talent development for certain roles has not been there. We gave people some of their first shots. We promoted them from their previous jobs. But, you know, I think that that, you know, I, I think that that diversity of opinions and and the makeup of a staff is very important. And there were certain writers room that that writers room that, that I was in that you know didn't reflect that. And you know, I remember getting very upset about it in one of them for a long time, for almost a whole year. Um, but then at some point, I had to just say to myself that when you get your own show, you'll be able to staff it the way that you want to staff it. And hopefully that will be an example to others or not, or it's just, you'll have a show that's staffed the way you want it to be staffed in terms of the makeup and that'll make you happy. And that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, what, what you know, what more can you do at, at you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like sometimes you can only do what you can do. Right. Um, what is it? What is a showrunner? What, you know, I've heard that term so many times, like I, it's become, you know, parlance in, in, in you know, uh, uh, any kind of Hollywood reporting, you hear it all the time, but what, what is a showrunner? Yeah. All of a sudden it's everywhere. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know what, what, I didn't even know what a showrunner was until I got my first TV job. But, uh, <laughs> You know, I, it's it's a little bit of a. It can be a formal or informal title, um, but typically it's the lead creative um, voice on the show. Um, so very often it'll be the creator of the show who also runs the writers' room, but also is the the final say in terms of all the creative decisions on the show. There's other times where the creator is not the showrunner, where the creator is maybe a little more green and they need somebody who has some production experience and they'll bring on an experienced showrunner. And that person, you know, may have a very strong creative voice or they may be a really good, really good at, you know, managing production or, you know, somebody that the studio trusts. Was it something that you wanted to do? Like you had went from, you know, writer's room to writer's room and sort of your title, like I alluded to it earlier, I just happened to notice, I think it was on your Wikipedia page, if I'll be transparent, um, that your title had changed over the seasons of Gotham. You were executive writer, you were, but was that something that you were sort of working towards? Like, I want to run my own, you know, I want to be the executive producer. I want um, control. And was it, you know, is it simply, um, you know, uh, opportunity or is it, I want to do a show the way I want to do the show. Cause you seem like a kind of person that you want the creative control more yeah. than anything. So, you know, if there's any TV writers or, or, or um, you know, um, people who want to be TV writers, I can kind of walk through the process for that, which is you typically start as a staff writer and then every year or every two years you get promoted automatically in your contract. So you start as staff writer, uh, story editor, then it goes to executive story editor, then co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-producer, executive producer. And it can take, you know, sometimes it can take eight years, sometimes it can take, you know, 20 years to, to climb that ladder. For me, it was more, as I, can, I, as I kind of went into, like, I was always a little bit, like, I felt like I was in 
the place I wanted to be, but I didn't have the tools necessary um, to make the best out of that situation. And when I first moved out to LA, I sold a show to CW. Um, I was the first pilot that I wrote on my own. It was called Hood, and CW was looking for their version of Game of Rooms. And I never sold anything before. I'd never really been in a writer's room except for about five months when I was uh, uh, when I was 26. I wrote on a show called Cashmere Mafia, which was a great experience, but I, I didn't. I just didn't know that much about it. So that year. It was between us and a show called Rain, which obviously got picked up, and I went to series for, I think, four or five years. And I, I came out of that experience, and I said, okay, let's, let's, let's try to do the mature thing. Let's really look at this. And I looked at the creators of Rain, and I was like, those people have 40, 50 years of TV staffing experience between them, and I don't have any. And I wanted to make sure the next time I sold the show that I had – been in the room to break a hundred episodes of TV. And so I asked my agents to send me out on as many network TV jobs as possible because you could break 22 episodes a year. And that was, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was a trial by fire. Certainly when I got dropped in, and I was kind of like, wow, what did I ask for? Because the level of difficulty to do 22 episodes a year was very high and I was not ready for it. But by the end of the five years, I'd worked on 22, ep- I worked on a hundred episodes of TV. And coming out of that, I, I really was ready to, you know, run my own show and, and, and create a show like Gremlins and, and be in charge of the production and the writer's room. And, and it, was, would, it was awesome for me to, to be patient. But you also embraced the difficulty of it. You, you, you put yourself in a situation. I, I, uh, I'm a martial artist. I practice jujitsu. I've been doing it for about, uh, five years now and, and, um, there's a level of pain involved and, uh, especially at my age, I'm 49 years old. And most of the guys that I train with are half my age, much better shape than me, much more, you know, athletic than I am. And, and it's a lot of, especially early on, it's a lot of getting the the crap kicked out of me, but there's a level of, I know this is going to make me better. And that's kind of what it sounds like. It's like you knew going into it, like, this is going to make me better. This is where I need to be. I have to throw myself into that uh, fire in order to temper myself uh, and make me stronger, which is uh, admirable for sure. I mean, I, I the first job that I got coming off of that was, I think it was season three of Once Upon a Time. And I just remember being like, there's so much mythology on the show everyone in the writer's room is, is, is such a high functioning human being. <laughs> like they're breaking, I mean, there were, there were days, I mean, just to be totally honest, there were days where I was so green that I remember by the end of the first year, I was looking at people and I was like, you guys are, I know you guys are saying words, but I'm not understanding. anything." <laughs> and I don't understand anything that you guys are saying. You guys are making, entertainment for millions of people and why am i even here i have no idea what to do <laughs> that'd be terrifying that's like the worst feeling in the world of like uh, i'm i'm way too stupid to be in this room i shouldn't be here <laughs> um i i was gonna ask you okay I, I, sort of this is sort of a selfish question um as a you know, you're a very accomplished writer. You've, you've, you know, done 
a lot of things, obviously. Um, how do you sort of go from the idea of something? Um, I'm, I'm a frustrated writer. I, I, I have dozens of ideas that come to me. I don't want them anymore. At, the, at this point in my life, I'm like, I'm not going to be a writer. I'm almost 50. Like the idea of being a writer at this point in my life is silly, you know, and, and, but I have ideas that come in my head all the time and I, I sort of work on them and flesh them out and start, you know, putting things on paper but I always sort of get stuck at a certain point where it's, you know, this trap of world building and character background and wanting to have this perfect uh, outline or wanting to have everything figured out in my head before I type anything uh, what advice would you have for writer? I'm sure I'm not the only one, even though, you know, uh, my situation may be unique, but what advice would you have for that kind of writer? Someone that's just sort of gets stuck with these ideas. I mean, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, there, there's, you know, every writer has a different process, but I think that, you know, there was, there was a number of years right after college where I had really bad, for lack of, it sounds like, Ridiculous! What like writer's block? I, I can't even say, believe I'm saying writer's block, but like writer's block, where I think because the idea of pushing something all the way to fruition and making something was so, it seemed so far away impossible. that sort of impossible. almost impossible. And what I found is that if you because now, now I have a very, very structured way that I um, create ideas, uh, that when ideas come to me, that I, I work through them, through to the finish line. But what I found was really helpful was breaking out, not thinking about the end product, and also thinking that it's okay for things to suck, even until, you know, you've put in 95% of the work, it, it might still suck until the last 5%. <laughs> Like I, I just have to. I, I, a lot of my writing is just telling myself, "Don't worry, it's, it'll. It, it's probably going to end up fine. It looks super ugly right now, but <laughs> don't worry." Um, but a lot of it is breaking off little things where it's like, you don't, you know, today I don't need to think about the final product. Today I just need to write five character descriptions of my five characters. And then tomorrow I'll look at the outline again and see if that changes anything. I just find that as long as you're writing and as long as things are moving towards that finish line, and I do have, you know, pretty rigid structure in terms of like, if I feel stuck now, I know that it's a certain number of things or I'll create a different type of document for it or whatever it is. But as long as you're writing and moving forward on something, eventually it'll, eventually it'll be done. You know? Some progress. Just make yeah. some progress. Yeah, make some progress every day. And, you know, but, but certainly if I thought about like, what's going to be like when I walk on set day one, you know, I'd be mortified. I would just never, I would never finish any, you know? So you're saying I shouldn't like, I shouldn't think about my acceptance speech before. Uh -huh. I <laughs> Is that is that a common like procrastination technique? <laughs> Cra oh, wait, you know, before I finish this script, I'm going to write my Emmy acceptance speech. 
<laughs> um, uh, okay, so back to comics. You grew up, uh, you were born in Chicago, right? I was born in Chicago. Yeah. How long, how long were you here? Um, I was I was three and a half. So my parents uh, met at, at um, Illinois Institute of Technology. Oh. And then they, uh, they moved to universe, uh, Champaign, uh, Urbana-Champaign. And then I moved to Boston when I was about five. Were they so teachers? I know uh, they were students. Oh. I was, I was like, I, I grew up in, uh, I mean, I was born and grew up in the first five years in graduate student housing. Oh, wow. And so you, were, you grew up in Boston um, and you were going to comic shops in Boston? Yeah. So my comic book shops were uh, New England Comics in Quincy, uh, Million Year Picnic in Harvard Square, and Newberry Comics also. Like they, they, they had, I mean, I, I think that they, they still have comic books. It's like they have more T-shirts than comic books at this point. But I used to also go to the MIT used to have a, a Newberry Comics pop-up shop that I used to go there. Did you, uh, do you, do you sell to those guys now? and it was really satisfying it was really satisfying to see the books on the shelves at new england comics and um it was really i mean million year picnic i have such great memories of just because when we would go in there like i mean me and my sister sometimes i mean i would certainly spend sometimes like an hour and a half trying to figure out like all right i've got five dollars or i've got ten dollars and pick up the same, you know, different combinations of four comics, you know, for an hour and a half. Get to the counter and the guys would be like, you know what? We saw you You've been here for an hour and a half. Just take, just take this third comic or like here's a pack of cards or something. So I mean, I spent so many, so many hours in those comic book shops and especially in the 25 cent bin. Oh my God. What, what do you remember? Like, what brought you into a comic book store for the first time? Do you have any, like, do you have a recollection of that? I remember everything. It was like, I was at Costco or, you know, the Boston version of Costco um, with my mom. And I found, um, there was like a Marvel encyclopedia. It was a big hardcover and it was like seven ninety nine or something. So I was like, please let me buy that. I don't even know what this is. I, I want it. I read through the whole thing and I got really into comics and I think maybe at Barnes and Nobles, I got one of the Marvel handbooks and I was like, wow, there's like a whole mythology of characters that I never knew existed. They're all so cool. And I told my mom, I mean, I told my mom that it sounds crazy. At the time, I was like, I think I want to be a comic book artist. <laughs> and, you know, I feel very thankful for my mom because I, and I, this is not the experience that a lot of, you know, Asian American kids my age had, but she was like, okay. And I was like, I didn't, didn't think anything of it. And then a few days passed and it was a Saturday and I woke up and I went downstairs and my mom had torn out the yellow pages or no, it was, I guess it was the white pages. Um, and it was every single comic book shop in the Boston area. And she was like, if you like comics, you really should, you know, uh, you know, let's go to every comic book shop on this list. Oh, that's cool. And we, and we went to like, you know, some of them were like old. Some of them were closed down, but like we went to like six or seven comic book shops, and it was this network of stores that I just didn't know existed. And you walked in, and it was like, "Holy shit! This is all the st- this is all the stuff that I like. <laughs> These are this is literally this is, this is my place. This is 
and then you know I would go every week. I would go every week. You know, it's amazing. You never like you never quite forget that experience. Like what you know, I I know you know I know people that have never read a comic book in their life that would never even imagine my wife, my wife has never read a comic. She would never pick up a comic book. That is the farthest from anything she would ever read. Um, but there's something about, you know, if it, when you first get that as a young person, there's never going back. Like there's, it's always with you. Like I, I know I had listened to an interview uh, you had done, I think maybe, eight months ago uh, for another podcast. And you talked about how you sort of fell away from comics in your twenties when you were in college, that kind of thing, which is, you know, typical, Uh, you know, I think I I did the same sort of thing and, but it was there. It was always inside you, you know, and it's like, you always kind of had, and I, you know, I've gone back and forth with comics. There's been a, a couple of times where I've stopped and I can never quite get away. I can never, you know, they dragged me back in, as Al Pacino would say in Godfather 2 or 3. 3? Was it 3? <laughs> I think it was 3. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like, if I had a, there was one show that I was really, I, you know, I mentioned I had a really tough year on, on one of the, the shows I worked on. But the offices were in Burbank, and I just found myself during the lunch hour everyone would eat lunch together and I would just like walk around the block. I would just walk around the neighborhood being like, what am what's happening to me? I got to get out of here. And I stumbled upon a comic book shop and it was house of secrets in Burbank. And, and, you know, there's a lot of comic book shops that are really like, you know, it's like all glass and marble or whatever it is. But this one was, it really felt like a comic book shop. Like the ones that, to growing up walking in the door and the smell of comics was so comforting <laughs> and i just remember but it was it was a very strange experience too because comics had changed so much since i had last read them because the last time i had read a comic was probably when i was 20 21 and now you know it was 10 years later the books on the shelves were different you know it was like i remember looking at it, and it was like paper girls this doesn't look like any comic book I've ever oh, seen sure. before. Holy crap. What is the Southern bastards book? Like I've, I've never, I haven't seen anything that's looked remotely like this. And then also looking at the demographic of the people there, it was like, you know, it felt like there were, there were older people, but there were younger people. It was, it felt, it felt very different than, you know, sometimes when I would go to a comic book shop, it was, it was, you know, all kids are people in their early twenties. And this felt like, I don't know, there was something about it that really stuck with me that, like, it was something I wanted to be a part of. And that was really, that year on that show was when, you know, Sal and I started talking and I was like, I think, I think we should start a comic book company. (laughs) What was Sal's initial reaction to that? Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Sal was down for everything. I think we had talked about starting other businesses together, but it was really funny. I was like, you know, I, I don't have a background in business. You know, Sal, Sal is a working class guy from Brooklyn, really brilliant guy who, you know, got into software when everyone was looking at hardware. You know, I think he, he started with like $700 in his pocket and grew one of the largest privately held software companies in the world. And I just saw 
I just saw that there was like a new type of comic book company that could be put together. And there were so many talented people, so many talented creators. And I wanted to create a company that, um, you know, was an infrastructure to, to support them, which I don't think, you know, I didn't see that from the existing companies. And so we wanted to try to create something new and I pitched it to him and there was kind of like a silence on the other end of the line. It was on the phone because he was in um, the Bay area at the time. And then he was like, this sounds great. Let's do it. Um, Write me a business proposal. (laughs) So that was it. You know, that's great. So what do you see as, like, where do you see TKO in five years, in 10 years? Like, what is the goal of TKO? I mean, I, I get the feeling from you talking to you and, and, and uh, you know, reading about your work and that kind of thing that, you know, this is about making great comics, not like, you know, you're, you're a writer, you're a storyteller. You want to tell great stories. So what? where do you see TKO in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years? Um, what do you what do you want the company to be? I mean, I think that we have the capacity to grow. Um, we'll always have the capacity to grow um, because of you know Sal's background and my background, and um, Jutton, who's a third in our company, his background. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, whether it's you know, we'll always focus on comics, but there will be a film and television component to it. There's going to be a a prose component to it as well. But really the umbrella is, I mean, the heart, the heart of it is comics because that's how we started. We want to create a place and a company that is a home for creators where they can do their best work and we will support them any way we can. Um, We tailor the schedule, the production, the creative teams around how creators like to work and we always have, and we always will. And our commitment to them is once they do their best work, we will do our best to, you know, find an audience for their books. Is there, um, I mean, the books that you've put out so far, I would, I would classify them as more mature readers um is there any plans i mean i know the you know the 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 ya market is huge uh scholastic and and book fairs and that kind of thing is there any uh uh, thoughts of going in that direction as well yes we'll announce two ya graphic novels um that'll be coming out probably either later on this year or early next year oh all right great so you're right there you guys are we're, we're, we're always open to different types of stories. We don't, you know, we kind of, we kind of fell into um, the mature stories uh, early on. Um, but, you know, for us, it's kind of like, we're, we're, we're very open. You know, we'd love to do like a comedy book. You know, we'd love to do a romance book. It just has to be the mandate creatively for TKO is, it just has to be a character-driven new take on an established genre. So it could be horror, sci-fi. I mean, Goodnight Paradise is a murder mystery, but it's a murder mystery set in the homeless population of Venice, California. You know, something that we've never seen before. So, you know, we're really we're really open to any genre, um, as long as you know we think that um, it has the potential to be something really special. Not to jump to, I, I, it just popped in my head, but 
the animation style on on the Gremlins project. I wanted to ask you about was you know what type of animation style are we going to look forward to in that, and and um, how did that process develop? Um, it's it's uh, it's two and a half D, um, which means that um, it's a blend of CG and two D. And the reason that we did that was we wanted a really cinematic look for it. We want to be able to move the camera the way that, I mean, it's an Amblin show. And so we want to move the camera as cinematically as possible. Um, and we also wanted it to have a really painterly quality. So that's why, you know, we're a lot of like 2d backgrounds and also making sure that the, even the characters look very organic. Um, some of the reference points are like the studio Ghibli stuff. Um, but, you know, using all of the modern technology to, to move the camera and to create a really cinematic experience. And we're really looking at it as like a 10-episode a movie. Okay. I assume you've, uh, you've seen Into the Spider-Verse, the, uh, the animated film. Oh, I mean, that was, I think for me, that was one of the, like... Uh, standouts in the last decade, you know, two decades of animation, uh, you know, what they did in that to com- combine 2D and 3D and and all the different art styles and all the, you know, for a, a longtime comic book fan, all the Easter eggs of art styles that they put into that was just kind of amazing uh, and really just a joy. It's an incredible movie. I mean, I I Actually, I looked at the poster and I was like, I can't, I don't want to know anything about this until I walk into the movie theater and watch it. And I'm so glad I did because just to be pummeled with that much, like exuberant imagery was, uh, I mean, I was, I was shocked by how, I mean, it's one of the best, it's one of the best movies that I've seen in the last 10 years. Certainly one of the best superhero movies I've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's that's an interesting point. Like, you know, being sort of inside baseball, inside Hollywood, you know, are you, are you ruined a lot of times and being able to sort of experience things? I know, um, a friend of the show, a guy we've, we've talked to a few times is, uh, Gabriel Hardman, who is a comic book artist and writer and also a storyboard artist. Um, and you know, he's talked before about there's, there's been projects that he's worked on and it's like, yeah, it's, it's great, but it also kind of sucks because I don't get to enjoy it from purely a fan perspective. Is that something you've, you've experienced too? Like have have there been things you've worked on where it's like, gee, I kind of wish I could have just enjoyed this, uh, as a fan and not from inside it. I mean, I think that there's always stuff that's surprising. I mean, I try not to, I mean, like even with the episodes of Gotham that I wrote, you know, when it's, it's so different seeing a rough cut of something without the color correction and the score and the visual effects. And then to see it on TV, I mean, there's always something that is, that I find really surprising or unexpected, you know, whether it's a performance by one of the actors that said a line that I wrote that in a way that, you know, was surprising and so much better than, you know, I had it in my mind. Um, you know, I, I find that, I find that it's, it's still really enjoyable. That's awesome. Um, well, I, I mean, I could, I, I literally, I could sit here and talk to you forever, uh, about, 
TV and movies and comics and all these things. And I don't, I, we've already gone an hour and a half and I don't want to keep you if, if, you know, if you need to go, um, it, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and, and any, anytime you want to come back, uh, more than welcome. Um, it, it's been a real pleasure uh, being able to talk to you about all this stuff. And, uh, like I said, it, it, I'm a fan of, of everything you've done so far. I'm, I, you, you know, I'm a fan of your work at this point. So, um, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, uh, anything else you want to, like I said, I could, I have 50 more questions I could ask you, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So is there anything else that you want, uh, people to know about any other projects, uh, anything coming up from, from TKO or, or any of your other work? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you can visit TKO presents.com. You can check out all of our first issues of our books for free. Um, and we have eight series out now. There's going to be another, three out later on this year. Um, you can follow us at, at TKO presents across all social platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can follow me at the Z Chun, um, on Twitter and Instagram. It's, uh, Um, but yeah, this has been so fun and it's like, it's always great to talk to other fans and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great to connect. And also I want to tell people, you know, uh, thanks to, to TKO, you guys have given us a, a promo code. If you uh, do want to go on the, on the site and, and purchase something, you can use around, uh, comics pod 20 and get 20% off anything on the store. So please do that. I, I can't recommend the books enough. Honestly, I, I, I enjoyed, uh, everything that I've read. i I haven't unfortunately had enough time to read everything that you guys sent, but I'm going to for sure, because it's just been great stuff. And uh, I look forward to gremlins. That's something I I absolutely am looking forward to. And, and please, I I, uh, hope you'll come back on the show sometime and and talk some more. Uh, But thank you so much for coming on and, and, and nothing but success. I hope for you and TKO and everything that you do. Thank you. You as well. All right. Thank you, Z. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that was Z Chun, uh, a super interesting guy, uh, hardworking, great writer. Uh, like I said, I've been a huge fan of his, his stuff. Looking forward to uh, the Gremlins work. Um, and as I said before, you guys can get uh, 20% off at TKOPresents.com. Use the discount code around comics pod. 20 and you'll get 20% off. Um, it, it's uh, great stuff. I highly recommend sentient, uh, amazing comic book, either in the trade. I got the six issues, uh, and it was really fun to read. Um, the, the, his, uh, two titles are, um, Oh no, I can't remember the seven deadly sins and the fearsome Dr. Fang, uh, both really good. The art in both of those are amazing. Uh, interesting genre stories. Uh, and then there's Garth Ennis's book, Garth Ennis's book, I should say, with Steve Epting uh, that's out there. Uh, that's over there, right there, Sarah. Um, yeah, so go check that stuff out. And I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. Uh, so, you know, if you didn't, I don't know what the hell's wrong with you people. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. As always, you can um, contact us uh, at info at aroundcomics.com right there. 
You can send us an email if you have questions, uh, concerns, comments for the show. I feel like my hair is extra greasy today. It's a little, it's a little slimy. I I did a workout before the podcast. Maybe I won't. I shouldn't work out before the podcast anymore. Um, you can also uh, join us on Instagram or Twitter. You can join us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash around comics. Uh, that keeps growing and, and we post stuff in there uh, from time to time. Um, I'm looking at putting some stuff on Kofi. Um, uh, if you go to Kofi.com slash ko fi.com slash around comics, that's our uh, Kofi page. You can, or coffee, you can support us there, buy us a cup of coffee. Uh, I'm looking to post some stuff on there, some shorter episodes I might try and do specifically on that. And Chris and Tom, hopefully I can get them involved as well, um, that you can only get on there. So check that out. Um, also, uh, you can buy stuff from us if you're interested. You can you can buy stuff uh, at uh, aroundcomics.com slash shop. There's all sorts of things on there. You can purchase um, T-shirts and hats. I just got a new hat. I just got this hat in. I was going to wear it, but, you know, I kind of look like a punk if I wear a hat. So I didn't wear it, but you can, that's a, pretty cool. Look at that. Around Comics hat. Um, there's coffee mugs, all that kind of thing. You can also go to aroundcomics.com slash uh, top of the stack. And that um, I'm starting to put up listing books that we've talked about and uh, links to Amazon that you can purchase at. And a little percentage of those purchases will come and help the show and support us as well. So uh, you can help and support the show. Uh, listen, I, I don't like asking for your money. It, we've always done this show for free. It's always been something that we've uh, prided ourselves on. And we will continue to do the show just for the enjoyment, for the fun of doing it. But, hey, if you want to help us out, if you want to help support the show and pay for the cost of supporting the show or uh, promoting the show, producing the show, I guess I'm a the showrunner. I am the showrunner of Around Comics. I'm going to start calling myself that after uh, Z explained to me what a showrunner was. I'm going to start calling myself an around comic showrunner. I'm a showrunner. It's a shitty show, but I'm the runner of this sh shitty show. Um, so that's about it, guys. That's all I got for tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, please, uh, as always, thank you for listening. You can um, watch this on YouTube or Facebook or Periscope. You can listen to the show on iTunes or Spotify or wherever podcasts are found. Um, that's about it. That's about all I have for this episode thanks for listening we'll see you guys i think we're going to do another episode on sunday and um yeah that's uh that's about it. so in the meantime in between time we'll be everywhere around comics